Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we are glad you are joining us today. Uh, one of the things that's new to our program is that we are available streaming on the internet at tarletonradio.com. So in addition to uh, listening on the radio, you can catch us uh, online uh, at the time of the show. That's 12 noon on Sundays on KTRLFM 90.5 or on tarletonradio.com. And then also on SoundCloud or where you get your podcasts. So there are lots of options available to listen to the show each week. So we turn, as we do most weeks, immediately to a very pressing issue, an issue of concern in our region throughout our state, uh, but also uh, looking at very specific issues during this pandemic and the impact of COVID-19 and, and how that uh, affects uh, government, uh, politics, public policy in, in different areas. And so today we are welcoming Dan Cox, who is the executive director of the NOAA Project, uh, based in Abilene, Texas. Uh, this is a center uh, for the care of victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and trafficking. Uh, and Dan come, has come into that position, or has been in that position, uh, uh, for a number of years now, uh, having come from uh, experience in sales, full-time ministry, Christian child care, and for a while he was the development director for the Cherokee Home for Children in San Saba County. So with the NOAA project since 2016 as development director and then moving to executive director in 2017. And so, Dan, we're glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us to talk about a very serious and critical issue uh, that has uh, uh, had some interesting uh, uh, dynamics uh, going on right now in the midst of this crisis. But first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Well, let, let's start out before we get to uh, the, the issues and some of the, the, the things that we want to focus on uh, in terms of domestic violence and in the midst of this pandemic. And first, could you tell our listeners what NOAA Project does? I gave a little general description, but uh, in its 40-year history, there, there's, there's so much more uh, that uh, this uh, organization has offered to Abilene and to the surrounding region. Well, NOAA Project started in 1979, and uh, it's uh, very interesting that a number of uh, organizations like ours started right in that 1979, 1980, 81 uh, era. Uh, that's when the uh, realization that domestic violence was truly a, a, a epidemic uh, issue uh, in our society that where it really came to the forefront, and so. Uh, these organizations began to be formed. Um, we serve 10 counties. I'll go all the way uh, east uh, from Abilene to Eastland, all the way north up to Knox City and uh, the other uh, communities in Knox County. And if you drew a triangle between Abilene and Eastland and um, Knox City, everything that was inside that triangle would be within our uh, purview. We provide outreach services for those who don't need to come in. We also have a safe shelter uh, here in Abilene. Uh, we have, we just opened a new wing here, so we'll have available 96 beds for people who uh, are in danger and for their children when a lot of people come with their children. And so uh, we make sure that they have access to uh, legal help, to um, counseling, 
uh, referrals, uh, help with uh, finding uh, appropriate housing once they leave here, uh, helping with uh, uh, things like uh, job interviewing, nutrition, uh, parenting, all those kind of skills that someone who has been in a domestic violence uh, situation particularly uh, might not have had the opportunity to learn. So that's kind of the direction that, that we come out of and uh, the, the, the way we work. Uh, very good. I know those are critical services there that are offered and uh, that being able to expand that in terms of the need and, and knowing uh, in, in your involvement with that uh, uh, in recent years, the challenge with that, I think, in the midst of this crisis, and this is some of the information that, that I see, saw and, and read and then led me to kind of reach out to you, was that uh, the, there was initially an expectation that uh, these services would be in greater demand with the sheltering in place, with the uh, uh, job loss, with kind of the transitions we've seen on a number of fronts. And the data just shows that that's not been the case. Uh, uh, what have you seen uh, in in the midst of all of this, and and what kind of what were your expectations? But but what have you seen happen uh, in relation to that? Well, it, our original expectation, because uh, school let out early, because people were being laid off, because of the uh, closing of restaurants and bars and things like this, that we we thought the the tension would go up, and and it did, uh, and in the larger cities like uh, San Antonio, Austin, uh, El Paso, uh, they saw a significant increase in the number of people coming to shelters. In the smaller communities from Abilene size on down, um, uh, we saw, a lot of us saw less people coming into the shelters. Um, and I think that part of that has to do with the fact that in Abilene, we call it the biggest little town in Texas. Uh, when you're, when your abuser is gone to work, uh, a lot of times that presents an opportunity to escape. When that you hit that point, you say, I've got to get out of here. Uh, but when they're laid off, uh, no. Uh, a lot of the abusers even use the COVID-19 scare as uh, another form of control. You know, if you leave here, you're going to get sick. You're going to go someplace. It's going to be like a nursing home. You're going to stay in there. And, you're, and uh, so you can't can't run away. So it just take, took away their options. And we weren't the only organization uh, across the state that saw that. As you probably read in that uh, Texas Observer article you referred to when we talked originally. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to post that article on our uh, Facebook page uh, in advance of our uh, show and so that people can look at that information as well. But I thought there was something kind of interesting in the mix and talking about the difference between urban and, and rural settings where you would say, okay, well, it, you know, similar conditions might prevail in an urban area uh, with unemployment and with, you know, school closings and all that. Um, what, what are some of the factors there that, that, that might either facilitate people in an urban area getting out of a violent situation much uh, easier than, say, in a rural area? And, and, and I ask that because I know these are some of the challenges and dynamics that you, you deal with in providing the services that that you offer? Well, nine of the counties that we have are very rural, uh, Abilene being the largest town by a long shot uh, uh, in, in, the, in the areas that we serve. Uh, but the, just if you just look at uh, uh, 
folks that live in a small town, you look at a post on Facebook or even just a Facebook account and how many people are interconnected, their friends or friends of friends. And uh, uh, you take something like social media like that, where everyone is interconnected, just, just even a post about uh, the danger you're in or a post about I've, I've gone to a shelter or something can start this um, snowball effect to where that abuser can find you. Uh, and so you don't have that, that uh, anonymity uh, that a lot of people have in the larger towns where you can go to the other side of town and nobody has ever heard of you mm -hmm. where around here, not only do the people in town know you, but sometimes in the surrounding towns, they know you. And so it's so easy to get word back to that abuser that you're looking for escape or you're thinking about getting out. And that's one of the reasons we tell people, uh, don't, don't tell your abuser you're thinking about leaving. Uh, don't tell your, your friends, make that step first. And then you can contact who you need to contact uh, mm -hmm. because you don't know when it's going to get back to them. What role does law enforcement play in this? Uh, I mean, I'm, I know that you, you, you work with them and, and of course, anytime there's domestic violence or family violence, uh, you very often have law enforcement involved, especially if it moves to a level where uh, neighbors or you know someone tries to intervene or tries to uh, address the situation. Uh, is there a difference there in terms of the engagement of law enforcement from a, a rural to an urban area? Well, certainly, because a lot of times the, the police are, are more familiar with uh, uh, the people in that neighborhood or may even know the people that they're dealing with. Um, that, that certainly is a, is a factor. But um, in Abilene, our police department and NOAA Project and uh, some other collaborative organizations work together. We're, we uh, took a Maryland model of a lethality assessment protocol and on, at the side of a domestic violence incident, the police officer has a uh, checklist he goes down and if you score a certain way, immediately they call us and, and uh, let us know about the situation and offer the opportunity for that victim to talk to us right there on the site where we can safety plan, we can, where we can talk about their options because that's what's been taken away from them. Uh, uh, this is not about uh, sex. It's not about uh, uh, dominance. It's about control. Uh, and, and, uh, so giving people options is the way to work and been working with the police department. We train, in fact, we just, this week we're training cadets, uh, uh the incoming class, uh, from, um, the uh, police department. Uh, and one of the things that we talk about is just, uh, the signs of, uh, of a bad relationship, red flags in a relationship, uh, how people are going to react. Some of the things that, uh, I heard a police officer one time say, well, these were victims, but they're not real victims because they they went back and they don't understand the the dynamic uh, of that uh, power and control. And that's one of the things that we teach with the police departments. And uh, we work hand in hand with the district attorney's office, with CPS, uh, with uh, uh, probation, um, the the victims crisis center here in the community, uh, pregnancy resources. I mean, we, every every bit of a web we can build. Well, that training and that that network is uh, is certainly been critical in what you're doing. And I, I, from what I've read, it, it may even be more critical going forward because there there's anticipated that there's just going to be a spike in the need for these kind of services and what you provide uh, through the NOAA project. What what do you anticipate, and 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 how are you uh, preparing for that? Well, 
Fortunately, there have been some government programs that have been added on to the normal uh, uh, grants that we get from the state or federal government uh, that are COVID-19 related, uh, having to do with the emergency that we have going on, allowing us to, to make sure we have enough funds to have the supplies that we need, uh, whether it's food or personal hygiene products or uh, if it's uh, 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 medical related uh, items that you, that you have to have that are hard to get, uh, those things are have become a, a priority. And so you know, we're working with every uh, solution that we have to try to get these uh, all put together and to keep a uh, consistent drumbeat uh, to the victim because that's, regardless of what happens, uh, the domestic violence is going on whether they're coming to the shelter or not. Our, our job is to make sure that we're ready when they walk in the door. We, we do this, uh, this article that was written, uh, they um, uh, interviewed some people from, uh, from the shelter in Lufkin and then from uh, Plainview. And they all, we all kind of said the same thing, that we think there's still going to be a spike, uh, even though we haven't seen it yet. And as people go back to work and schedules become more realistic, then people are going to look for that opportunity. Uh, they're going to find that courage, and that's going to be very important. Well, before we move on to talk a little bit about the kind of the policy side of this and where, you know, government's role in, uh, in addition to law enforcement, uh, uh, you also said about human trafficking, and and I wanted to bring this to our attention because in a in a rural area, many people, as I've seen this with students, uh, uh, we even had a program. We did a study abroad program a couple of summers ago to Prague and uh, with criminal justice and, and and policy students. And part of our time there was focused on human trafficking in Europe. And a few semester years ago, I had a student in our uh, one of our capstone courses that wanted to focus on human trafficking in Texas, and 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 you when you have these conversations with people, and I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but they would go in Texas, you know, hu human trafficking, and they're just their awareness of something that seems uh, it, it very much is a global issue, but right here in the United States and right here in Texas, and and, and in some ways we we. Uh, in looking at this in a policy standpoint, we're kind of behind the curve in the data that we have responding to some of the, the challenges uh, of this. But uh, could you talk a little bit more about this in terms of, of uh, Texas, Abilene, rural Texas, and, and just trying to raise people's awareness here of what kind of issues that we're dealing with? Uh, uh, because this is happening. It's happening around us. And, and, and for most people, it's either that they're not observant of the, the signs of it or they, they may not be exposed to it. That, that's, that could be likely as well, but we can't ignore it. Uh, it is here in our own state and in our own country, and it does need more attention. Well, the trafficking uh, is becoming more and more prevalent, and, it, and it's tied in. A lot of times it can be tied in uh, to a, a work situation. It can be tied into uh, drugs. It can be tied into prostitution. Uh, a, a lot of times when we see these, these uh, young girls that are arrested for prostitution, uh, they're most likely are trafficked and not, uh, not mm -hmm. a chosen profession. This is a forced uh, uh, profession on them. And so getting police departments to be able to, to recognize the fact that uh, this person is breaking the law, may not be breaking the law of their own accord. There may be threats against their family, uh, threats against themselves, 
all sorts of things like that. We even see, and it's, and it's talk about something that's despicable. We have seen people use uh, their children to pay the rent uh, with a with mm-hmm. an abusive landlord, or they don't can't pay the rent, or they need drugs, or they need uh, something else, and they will trade their children uh, for an evening to. Uh, mm to provide for that. And that's a form of trafficking as well. And so it, it takes so many forms when you start looking at those different variations of it, it's way more prevalent than, than we really like to even imagine. Right. And, and that, that's, it, it, it's so challenging of an issue. I mean, it's so tragic in a, in a way as well, but it's, uh, we're still trying to adjust policy as you're talking about with law enforcement often, uh, arrests are made, but it, it's, it's, how we provide, how do we identify? And, 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 and rural Texas is not immune to that. I, I served on a, a district, uh, a grand jury, uh, for a six month period about four or five years ago. And, uh, in, in Brown County and that opportunity really for me opened my eyes to a lot of the things that are just, they're happening around us that we just, we may not be in the ebb, of, ebb and flow of that to, to be able to recognize it, but it, but it is happening. And, and that's, what's challenging our law enforcement. It's challenging agencies like yours and, and what you do. And, but also it, it, I, I would assume this, and I, and I've traveled around the world. I've seen some very, very challenging things. Uh, but, but in the work that you're in and seeing some of that, that, that is really, um, uh, uh, challenging in terms of our, our, our human existence and seeing these kind of things happen and what people do to each other, uh, that, that's, uh, it has, it has to be, uh, very heart wrenching at times. Uh, but also, you know, you're bringing relief and aid and assistance, uh, to people who, who really need it. Um, uh, talking, looking kind of beyond this too, a little bit in, in the midst of this pandemic and, and do you see, uh, this area like trafficking or any other areas related to this, that um, uh, policy and the role that government has uh, is changing in any way. I mean, I, I know sometimes we have a, put things on a pause when we have a crisis like this, you see some policy movement and some changes and then all of a sudden the crisis happens and all of our attention is diverted in that direction. But uh, but in terms of de- dealing with uh, domestic violence, family violence, human trafficking, uh, you, what what is happening on, on that level in which state, local, and maybe even federal government are engaging more with some of these issues? The uh, domestic violence shelters and domestic violence programs have been fortunate that at the state level and at the federal level in uh, the relief um, legislation is coming through that we've been able to stay on the forefront uh, on the minds of uh, our uh, legislators and uh, the domestic violence shelters have a very strong ally in the Texas Council on Family Violence and that's kind of our family or our, our uh, organizational uh, go-to uh, place and uh, and they have lobbied successfully to be sure that we're considered essential and that when the funding goes out on things that there are provisions for domestic violence shelters because uh, we're providing safe haven, safe shelter for people who otherwise uh, uh, might be on the street or uh, might end up in that trafficking situation um, very easily. Uh, 
Um, so uh, from the standpoint of, of the state and federal government, the, Texas is very good about keeping an eye on domestic violence. Uh, they've done a, a really good job of that. Our local governments, our counties and our states, just a matter of uh, our, our cities, we're, it's a matter of keeping them informed of what's going on. Be sure that they understand that it really is happening here in our community. We, we put out a lot of effort in the city of Abilene to be sure that city and county know exactly what's going on in our, in, in our organization, why things are happening a certain way, and the fluctuations in our uh, population in the shelter, just so that they know it's, it's real, it's not just a, an abstract. Well, and what we see here in Texas, and I think this is where a lot of people have to understand how some of this works, because some who are not informed about these issues, you know, think that, well, there's a government program or government uh, is addressing that in some way. But what, what we really see here in Texas, and it's this way in many places throughout the country, is it's a it's a private and public partnership of of, of agencies and organizations, many of which run on donations and, and uh, charitable contributions and, and, and foundation grants and so on in order to enhance uh, the services that, or, or even provide them where they're non-existent, uh, which I assume like in your case with NOAA project with its uh, four decades of history here, there, there was a need there and needed to be met and people in the community came together and said, let's, let's see what we can do. And, and these things grow over time, but the people really have to understand that, that this is, it, this is not always about government and policy because uh, it doesn't always cover all the areas that, that, that really need to be addressed and where sometimes the real genuine uh, needs are. Um, in terms of the support uh, in, 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 uh, in Abilene and in the region, uh, uh, how, how strong is that at this point? I know when we go through these kinds of crises that uh, there's always concern about uh, charitable giving and, and those kinds of things, but, but the NOAA project has been around for, for uh, 40 years and, and seems like you have a very solid base of support, not just in the community, but, but beyond. Every nonprofit in the nation, but particularly in Texas was affected. Uh, we're affected by the oil prices. We're affected by, small business because some of our greatest supporters are small business owners. Uh, we're uh, those who are retired, whose retirement is dependent on the market. Um, when it takes those uh, jumps up and down, all those things affect the nonprofits. And uh, I speak regularly with the executive directors in, in Abilene, there's a couple of uh, uh, groups like the Community Foundation and uh, in United Way. And we were all kind of in the same boat and that's that uh, it's harder. A lot of us had to cancel uh, our fundraisers that were in the spring uh, that are, are key to uh, a lot of the things that we do. And so we've had to be innovative. We have to do other things. Uh, a lot of folks have been very generous, even in the midst. Of, I had one fellow send us a check not long ago, and I know he's been laid off. And I called him to thank him. And he said, well, just I, I know that your work doesn't stop just because I don't have a job. And uh, it, it was just, you know, almost brought me to tears. Just thinking about the, the commitment that people have uh, to try to protect those who are in danger. And that's literally uh, what happens here. We're one of the, those organizations that, that when we, our feet hit the floor in the morning, we say we get to save a life today. And it really is true in a domestic violence and sexual assault shelter. 
It is, and that that's so so critical uh, in 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 the service that you provide, and and the opportunities that you have to to provide that intervention and that op that life saving opportunity. And I think not only people need to be aware, and, and certainly our listeners of the show, to think about how they support organizations like NOAA Project that that offer these kinds of services. But as someone that's been directly involved with this kind of work, seeing the the issues, the challenges, the the just uh, uh, the experiences that people have, and 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 then the opportunities that they have to get out of that and move forward with their lives and and have some support. Uh, what do you what do you tell people and or encourage people even too as we're talking to our listeners here of of how they can be more supportive in addition to. Uh, uh, their generosity and, and, and offering to help and support financially. Uh, but this is stuff, as we've talked about, that's going on around us. Uh, domestic and family violence is, is something that's, that's with us. Uh, the human trafficking element is there as well. And, and of course, I know some of this is, you know, if you see something suspicious, you need to report it and let law enforcement know. But what are other things that you encourage uh, people to do? Uh, to just be more aware and more engaged with these kinds of issues that are very oftentimes a matter of life and death. Statistically, in Texas, one in three women will be a victim of uh, uh, intimate partner uh, abuse. Uh, and a lot of people are surprised at that, at that number, how many people that is. But also one in four men will be uh, a victim as well. Uh, being aware of the situation with your friends, with your relatives, uh, with people that you work with. Uh, we, we always say it's, there's nothing wrong with asking somebody, are you okay? Um, uh, when someone starts showing up late for work, when they start making excuses for uh, injuries, uh, when they uh, start withdrawing from their own family and close friends, uh, uh, those are the, some of the things that we see that are red flags in a, in a relationship and should cause us to, to keep an eye open. It also should be okay. I mean, you should feel okay to call the police. If it looks like somebody's in danger, it looks like they're going to get hurt because uh, domestic violence situations increase so quickly. Uh, there was an article not long ago about a police in one of our major Texas cities. He was standing on the curb talking to, uh, a, an alleged abuser and the wife and one of the stepdaughters was standing there with them. And while the policeman was talking, the man drew a gun, shot the wife, shot the, the stepdaughter, ran into the house and shot uh, the other daughter before the policeman could even clear his holster. And it, that's how fast uh, a domestic violence situation can escalate. Why police officers, I have uh, one son and two son-in-laws who are police officers right now. And one that's a criminal justice major, just graduated from Tarleton and he wants to be a police officer. And the, the thing those three will tell you is domestic violence is the most dangerous call to go on because it can blow up so quickly. It's about control. And once they feel the perpetrator feels like he's lost control, then he's going to take uh, that person out that he can. The ultimate sign of control is to take their life. And then when, once that spins out of control, then nothing else matters. And that's where you get these multiple shows a lot of times. So, so it's critical for people to, to, to check on others, to see if they're okay, to, uh, to, 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 to watch. I mean, it, the prevalence of this, I mean, again, I think that's where a lot of people are just misinformed is they don't know 
really how prevalent this is. And a lot of times it is hidden, uh, but uh, we know that our, you know, our educators are, that work with children, uh, uh, but even, even neighbors, people can, can keep an eye out and just be concerned about the well-being of the people around them. I think we've all done a little bit more of that in our neighborhoods when with this in some areas where we, we were isolated a little more, but uh, reaching out and checking on a neighbor to make sure they have what they need and so on. But, but certainly if they see anything that is of concern that, that, that it needs to be addressed, because like you said, it could be a matter of, of saving someone's life. Uh, to, well, to, to do well that. one of the things we've been telling people in the last couple of years is that it's not just about saving the life of that mom or a woman or the mom and a couple of kids, although that's extremely important, mm-hmm. but also be one of those things that spins out of control. And then it affects our kids at school that that person shows up at school angry with a gun or a knife or they show up at the Lions Club meeting or City Hall or the mall or some other place. And 54% of the mass shootings uh, uh, over uh, the last several years has been, uh, had a root in uh, domestic violence from uh, Sutherland Springs. Uh, There was one in California where a guy killed uh, his wife, stuffed her up underneath the porch and then went to school to shoot it up. The janitor, red flags went up. He, he pulled the alarm. They shut the school down and the guy just shut out some windows because he couldn't get into the school. Uh, but we see those things happen in their, their basis. The baseline in that is that power and control that was in that intimate relationship that went uh, awry. And so getting help to people, getting people to be able to talk to professionals who know about this, uh, getting our, our ministers who hear, people coming in their church to talk about, uh, you know, they, they come to, for counseling and, and they find out there's a domestic violence situation. They need to refer them to a, a professional or to a, a shelter because uh, safety planning is so critical in the early stages of this to know what to do and who to call and how to, where that number is uh, so that they can be safe. And if that person who's in danger won't call and it's a family member, Call on their behalf and, and talk to uh, an advocate and find out what what you need to be doing uh, so that when they need help, you're not saying, well, surely there's something we can do. You already have an idea going. Very good. Well, we thank you for that that advice and, and direction and, and trying to encourage awareness and response. Uh, to those needs. Uh, uh, we have, we've been uh, with us, joining us today, I should say, is Dan Cox, who is the executive director of the NOAA project based in Abilene. Uh, you can find more information on the NOAA project at noaaproject.org, and I would encourage you to do that to see uh, how uh, a service like this, uh, an organization, uh, one that has been uh, doing what it's been doing for over 40, for 40 years, uh, and how critical these things are, the, this, this work is to our communities. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you for joining us today. This is, this is very helpful, and it, I think it really raises the awareness level of, of our listeners and, and those that follow us online as well, but just to try to understand some of the dynamics that are going on uh, in the midst of this crisis. Uh, so thank you again for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's shows like this that raise awareness will save people's lives. And that's very, very important. We appreciate it. 
You're, you're very welcome. We are going to take a short commercial break and then we will be back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. We are excited to announce that KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in anytime to catch your favorite shows from Tarleton Public Radio. Relax and enjoy the best of NPR news, classical, jazz, and all of our local programs like Essential Jazz, Beatles and Beyond, and more. To listen to your KTRL favorites, visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at ktrl.fm. Welcome back to On Politics. We want to thank again Dan Cox, the director of the NOAA Project based out of Abilene, for joining us for a really focused interview on domestic family violence, human trafficking, uh, and the, uh, the, the dynamics that are going on in that area right now as we're looking at the differences between urban and rural settings. So I invite you, if you missed that interview, to look us up on SoundCloud uh, after the show airs today. And also I'll be posting links on our Facebook page uh, so that you can visit the NOAA Project website. Uh, as well as follow other related content. So as we wrap up the show today in this uh, second part in our second segment, uh, there's a couple of things I want to get back to from previous shows, but it's also kind of looking ahead. Uh, what we're looking at next week is uh, certainly revisiting uh, the state reopening uh, in relation to the status of the coronavirus as we see hospitalizations increasing. Uh, we're seeing uh, a high totals in terms of infection rate. And we want to look at that in terms of the strategy that's there in order to reopen the state, especially as we're looking ahead to the summer. Uh, now some of the predictions of, a, of maybe a second wave uh, in as early as September. Uh, but uh, uh, we want to give that some attention to, to talk about some of the, the challenges in navigating this uh, in terms of policy and the response of government, both on the state and local level, as well as the federal level. Uh, we also want to look at some hard polling data uh, on the election, uh, looking at both statewide races uh, as well as uh, the race for the presidency. So we'll be getting into that more next week, getting back to some of that. But, I'll, but I wanted to look at today were a couple of things that have been uh, in the news in relation to some of the shows that we've had, specifically last week when we welcomed uh, Dr. Del Carmen and we talked about uh, policing in the midst of these very charged moments and that have that are focused on uh, uh, racial issues and uh, racial injustice and so forth. But when we when we look at this, there's a couple of things that have been very prominent. One has been how all of this, the protests, the concerns about policing, uh, the challenges of of, of uh, issues that are focused on on race in uh, relation to the presidential election and specifically the pick 
that Joe Biden will most likely be making soon for a vice president. And we've talked about this a, a few months ago as we were looking at the potential candidates for this position, but some of this ha has, has changed and some of it hasn't in terms of the ranking of potential candidates as we move forward. And the reason why I'm going back to this now and in the context of the interview last week, as well as talking a little bit more uh, about race and the election is that all of this uh, has been developing along the way throughout uh, the last four years. There have been challenging issues and related to race uh, that have, have presented themselves from time to time. Here, we're seeing it much more concentrated, much more intense, and that's gonna have an impact on the election. Uh, this is not gonna go away uh, in a few weeks. It may uh, not receive as much attention if we have more economic challenges with the uh, current pandemic and if we have more public health challenges uh, as we move closer to the, the next uh, school year. Uh, but, but this is going to be something that's gonna be front and center, especially in the short term, as this pick will need to be made uh, sometime within uh, the next six weeks. And so one of the things I think that, that we're seeing is the prominence of African-American uh, candidates for this position rise in the ranking. Now, if we go back and we look three, three months ago and we look now, we still see that Kamala Harris uh, is, is at the very top of the list, if not um, very close to it in most polling and most uh, rankings that you see from uh, political commentators as well. Uh, because of her prominent role in the Senate, because she was a uh, presidential candidate herself, she comes from a very large state uh, that has uh, votes and has uh, uh, the resources uh, that could help with the campaign overall. I think one of the things that may have detracted from her candidacy uh, was the uh, executive experience, uh, looking at uh, the VP, VP position and knowing that uh, this position needs to be considered in relation to the responsibilities the vice president will have in an Biden administration. Uh, also, being from California, this is not a swing state. Uh, while Republicans are making inroads in certain parts of the state, uh, this is a given that the presidential candidate from the Democratic Party uh, will win California. And so the, the concern there was, should the pick be more in line with a state that would be in play in the election uh, that would ensure the, the numbers that would be needed and the number of swing states to uh, win the election uh, for Biden? Uh, I'm not sure that is weighing as heavy now as we see uh, these issues related to race. And I think that's where, where Kamala Harris, as well as several others, so if you look at some of the recent rankings, uh, you see names like Keisha Bottoms, who is the current mayor of Atlanta, uh, who has been, been very prominent in the news recently uh, with all of the issues going on uh, related to race, related to uh, some of the things following Minneapolis and the, the protests and so forth. We also see a Florida Congresswoman, Val Demings, uh, who is in the top of this list as well. And her positioning for a VP nomination uh, is increasing as well uh, because she does have, have background not only as a former sheriff of Orlando, uh, but also the focus on uh, police reform. So I think we see some very prominent African-American women uh, who uh, 
are in position uh, for this pick for a number of reasons, uh, not just about uh, the, uh, the fact that Biden had announced early on that he would be picking a woman for vice president, uh, but that there are a lot of implications in this pick. And it's not just about Biden's health. It's not just about, you know, who has the most experience that uh, can take over certain areas and coordinate those on behalf of the president, uh, or even perhaps be a, a candidate for president in the, uh, in the next election uh, for the Democratic Party. But it's also about dealing with a lot of these issues and tensions uh, that have continued to grow and now are, are, are very strong and very visible across the nation. And so this affects the presidential race, not just in terms of the pick. I mean, we can go on down the list of, of potential vice presidential candidates. Uh, and of course, you see some with very uh, uh, significant qualifications, including Elizabeth Warren, Susan Rice uh, is another possibility, Tammy Duckworth, uh, all the way to Stacey Abrams, uh, who uh, has had a very prominent visibility, uh, especially in the last year or so. Uh, and uh, is the Georgia State or former Georgia State House Minority Leader and the 2018 gubernatorial nominee who, who almost won that election. Uh, so uh, I, I think that this is, is very significant, both in terms of the pick that Biden makes, but it also has an impact on the other side, and that is the Republican strategy in addressing these issues leading up to the election, knowing the, the voting blocks uh, that uh, are needed in order to win that election. Uh, and right now, and we'll get into this in more detail in looking at polling next week, uh, but this has to be a concern of the Trump campaign because uh, they're losing ground uh, in a number of areas. And, and when we look back at how close the 2016 election was, especially in a couple of swing states, uh, this is something that that, that campaign cannot afford uh, at this point. They, they, they have to make very strategic decisions about how to address uh, some of these critical issues. And, and, and right now, uh, those uh, decisions, have I would just say on my part, have not been very good because of the backlash, not just the backlash among Democrats and among those who, who will not vote for Trump in the 2020 election, but also among many prominent Republicans. Uh, that has some influence as well. And so there's a need to, to, to retool here, to look at some of this. And I, and I would say one of the ones coming up uh, that, that, that's, that's very critical is the, uh, the, the campaign rally in Tulsa. Uh, this is getting a, a lot more attention, not just because of the COVID-19 crisis and, okay, why, why rallies, why you know, gathering people at this point, uh, but uh, this is the site of a, 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 really a, a, a massacre of African Americans, of what happened in 1921 when uh, this very prominent, uh, very uh, successful area of Tulsa um, was burned and destroyed uh, over uh, an incident between what, what was uh, alleged between a, a black man and a woman and a white woman in an elevator. And then all of a sudden, this thing gets out of hand and you have, uh, you have. Uh, uh, looting and burning, you have the KKK involved in, just, in, in, in basically just wiping out uh, this entire uh, uh, neighborhood of Greenwood uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so in the middle of all of this, to kind of to, to, to go in uh, into Tulsa and to have this rally, uh, 
And I, I think one of the challenges here is, is people not knowing their history. Uh, you, you see something like this and you see it becomes a flashpoint uh, for your opposition. It becomes a flashpoint that, that has, as other issues have done, shown a, a, a kind of a level of insensitivity uh, to uh, the issues of race and to the tensions that are still there. Uh, it, it's almost acting in a way as if none of this exists anymore. And I think that resonates with a lot of people in this country. We, we, you want to say, well, this doesn't exist. We've gotten past this. We're a century removed from uh, this, this issue of what happened in Tulsa. Uh, we're a century removed from uh, the, the, the era when lynching uh, was, was much more common across the South. Uh, we, we've come a long way. And yet when we see these things that what happened in Minneapolis, uh, what we see in response to uh, protesters, and, and I'm not talking about the violent ones, the ones that are destroying property and so on, I'm talking about people who are out there uh, with a voice about promoting community, promoting justice, promoting, uh, uh, working together to find solutions for some of this, uh, there seems to be an, an ignorance of, of that history and its impact and how that can very quickly, like what we're seeing with Tulsa, be brought back into the dialogue and discussion. Uh, and then this all uh, turns in a very negative direction. Uh, and my question has been all along as we've looked at the 2020 election, how many constituent groups, how many uh, how many people can uh, President Trump afford to alienate and still think that the numbers are there in order to win the ele election in 2020? Uh, so my my position on this is it's it's not so much for or against Trump or for or against Biden in terms of pointing these things out. I, I'm not here to to advocate my um, uh, political positions and perspectives on. Uh, on, on who I support in terms of a candidate. I'm just looking at it in terms of the politics of it and the challenges uh, that these campaigns are facing in critical decisions that they have to make, or a, a, as well as strategy and kind of looking at this and what the broader impact uh, will be. And, I, and I'm struggling to see that with the Trump campaign. I've, I've, I've looked at this and, I, and again, the decisions that they've been making, I go back to the discussion about the photo op last week with uh, clearing the, the streets of the protesters and, and trying to connect with that uh, conservative, religious conservative uh, base. Um, the, the negative that's coming out of these things is, is far surpassing uh, the positive, at least on the national level. And so I, uh, the, the, the challenge here, I think, in the, in the weeks and months ahead are very much on how that campaign, the Trump campaign, uh, can get engaged with this at a substantive level uh, that, that, that moves beyond just kind of the pro forma types of things, the, the, the campaign type of things. And, and it's very hard for that campaign to do. It's very hard for uh, to, to shift gears after for so long and so much of his presidency, he's been focused on what appeals to his base, what appeals to those who voted for him in 2016 and, and will vote for him again in 2020 and, and move kind of beyond that to embracing some of these larger challenges. Uh, again, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to focus here and, to, and people to think as well that I'm, I'm off here on the far extremes. I mean, I'm looking at uh, kind of the, the base electorate 
uh, the people who are not going to be out there destroying property, the people who are not going to be out there uh, uh, advocating violence or uh, defunding law enforcement or things like that. I mean, there, there are streams and, and voices and groups that are out there that are pushing a number of agendas that are, that are out there on the extreme that are not going to be accepted by uh, uh, the mainstream of this country. But we, we also have to recognize that our country is becoming more diverse. That becomes more challenging. We're seeing significant challenges persist among minority communities, African-Americans, Latinos, and others uh, that are, uh, are not being addressed or that then become the focal point of racial tensions when we see something like what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, and, and of course, there's so many issues now connected to that. Even in the midst of this pandemic, uh, the challenge that we see with the public health uh, uh, services and resources uh, for minorities uh, and seeing in higher infection rates and higher death rates uh, and knowing that, okay, there's many challenging health issues. There's poverty that's in the mix of this. There's uh, there, there, it is a matter of resources, of insurance and adequate health care and so on. Uh, th these are the issues that we need to be engaged with and addressing. And I think this is where the Trump campaign needs to go. Uh, they need to go into some of these areas as uncomfortable as it may be. It, it, that can't be an excuse, for, especially for the presidency and an administration that is now dealing with uh, a major pandemic and crisis as well as uh, what's going on within the country uh, related to race, related to policing, uh, related to the impact of the, um, uh, of the pandemic on minority groups. Uh, who has the messaging for this? And I think we're gonna see that developing uh, in the weeks ahead. We're gonna see the campaigns and where they coalesce around these issues and how they are communicating uh, on these issues in terms of, of uh, appealing to voters and looking uh, to that uh, November election. So we're going to continue to follow this. We're going to continue to give analysis. Uh, I, I plan to do that even, even more in depth as we look at how the campaigns uh, address these critical issues and then how they look at the policy formulation uh, and, and the areas that we're, will be front and center uh, as we move into uh, the next four years post-election. So I encourage you to join us each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM uh, for On Politics. You can follow us on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. You can find us on SoundCloud for our previous episodes. And you can also listen each week, not only here live on the radio, but also at tarletonradio.com. Thank you for joining, this, joining us this week, and I look forward uh, to being back with you again next week. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.